0: Well, we have the opportunity now to enter uh, God's Word this week again, as we do every single Sunday, and we're beginning this week um, a new sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. Uh, maybe you are new to the Christian faith and you have questions about the book of Nehemiah. Well, we as a, as a church want to study this book. It's an Old Testament book, and we're going to be studying it in our small groups Um, And I think we'll be studying this book until December. Then we'll have a bit of a reprieve there to look at the Advent season and then January, February again. So we have a few months uh, in this book and I hope that you come with willing hearts. Every single time you come to church on Sunday, come with willing hearts to learn. There's a lot, a lot, a lot to learn uh, in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, about his prom- God's promises, about who God is, the way he works t- in salvation history, how he fulfills all the promises uh, through Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to do for the next number of weeks. But I think it might be of some benefit just to kind of um, find ourselves in Holy Scripture here. I know that some of you, again, are, are new to the Christian faith, uh, maybe new to the Holy Bible, and you're like, okay, this guy Nehemiah, what's going on here? Well, Nehemiah was an administrator and he writes you could say a memoir a memoir of his life and nehemiah is probably the last book of the old testament he lived even after um, he wrote at least even after queen esther if you maybe know the story of queen esther Uh, so he is the last book of the bible in many ways and he is writing his 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 memoirs about his time um, as an administrator in, in Persia, and then coming to Jerusalem to help build, well, a wall. But the question is, why did this transpire? Why, were they, why was he in, 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 in Babylon why did, or Persia? Why did he come back to Jerusalem? What was happening here? Well, we need to back up just very, very briefly. I'm just going to give you a very, very brief history lesson of the Bible. Okay? Okay? I'll try to do this in two minutes or less. About 1,500 years before Nehemiah, there was a man named Abraham. If you are here last Sunday, we learned a little bit about Abraham. God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abraham. And I'm going to bless you. And I'll be your God, as we heard this morning, and the God of your children. Well, Abraham's little tribe, when the time that Abraham died, was, was three people. Well, his wife had already died. Maybe it was two. Abraham, Isaac, and now his wife. As Isaac married, had children. He had children. Jacob became a son of Isaac. And then this whole tribe populated into the hundreds of thousands in the land called Egypt. They were there for 400 years. God's promises never failed. He took the people of Israel, the, son, the children of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham. He brought them through the wilderness for 40 years, and he brought them into what he called the promised land. In the wilderness, he prepared them to enter into the promised land. He gave them 613 laws, commands on how to live before him in the promised land. He gave them blessings and, uh, that he gave them, and he also gave them curses if they didn't obey him. God was faithful. And for a thousand years or so, they lived in the promised land. And God would constantly send prophets to remind them of his ways, of his laws, of his promises. And, and, and they constantly rejected God. So finally God said, if you reject the, the commands of this covenant that I have with you, I'm going to send you into exile. Well, in 587 BC, before Jesus, the people of Judah and Jerusalem were all sent into exile. And we have a picture here of them leaving Jerusalem to walk about A 1,000 or more kilometers, 1,200 kilometers to their new home. Only the weak stayed back in a broken city. That was 587. In 538, a king rises in Persia now, became Persia, and his name is Cyrus, and he said, by God's command, send the people back. So under a man named Zerubbabel, in 538, a group of people of 42,000 or so came back to Jerusalem to city that wa- a city that was destroyed to a temple that was destroyed. In about five sixteen, after many years of fighting with the the the, the, the powers that be, they are able to complete the temple in five sixteen B C if you're wondering about the 70 years, some of you are wondering, well, how long were they in, in exile for? Well, the 70 years for some people is between the age that the temple broke was 587 and the building of the new temple, which was 516. That's almost, well, it's roughly just over 70 years. So, so that's happened. Now, 80 years after that, Or 60 years after that, a man named Ezra comes onto the scene. He's a priest, and he helped the congregation, the people of Israel, go back to temple worship. What does it mean to worship the Lord God at the temple? And, And he helped them. About 20 years after Ezra arrived in Jerusalem, Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem to help build the city walls again. So that's kind of where we are in the history of the world, we're having a man here who's going to help build the city walls that were destroyed by Babylon a hundred years or more, 150 years before that. But I have called this sermon the building blocks of hope. The building blocks of hope. Because I believe the story that we're going to study for the next number of months is pregnant with hope. And I want to remind you this morning that in the face of unbelievable odds and struggles, there's still reason for hope. Maybe you are here this morning and hope is at a very low ebb in your life. Maybe your life is like the exiles who returned to Jerusalem and expected a bit more of an easier ride than they got. And all they faced was setbacks and struggles and setbacks and struggles. And maybe that's what defines your life. Just one struggle after another. Maybe you think God is ignoring you this morning. He's distant. He's indifferent to your plight. Maybe your heart struggles to face tomorrow. Maybe darkness pervades your thoughts this morning. That might be you. And I want to remind you, as a proclaimer of the gospel, that there is hope. There's a hope, and that hope is an anchor to our souls. Some of you know the author, R.C. Sproul. He has since passed. He said this, Hope is called the anchor of the souls because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish, a wish that such and such would take place. Rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. It's a certainty that holds to the promises of the future that God has, has made. And the future for the people of Israel would be the finishing of the walls and stability now in their towns. But for us, our hope is not, and neither was theirs, our hope is not ultimately found in bricks and mortars. Our hope is not ultimately found in how prosperous Hamilton will become in the next 20 years and how populated we will be. Our hope is not found in our leaders either, our prime minister, whoever that might be in the next number of years. No, our hope is found in Jesus Christ, loved ones, this morning. He is the greater Nehemiah, we will learn. He is the greater architect. He is the greater builder. And if we tether our hope to Jesus, we will have hope. And I will say without Jesus... Without Jesus in our present context today, without having Jesus in your heart, your life will go from one hopeless scene to another. Hope is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to connect every single sermon to the hope that we have in Him. You may get tired of it, that's okay. But we are a people lacking in hope in different ways. And unless we tether our hope properly in the only comfort in this life and death, which is Jesus Christ, we will have a hard time facing tomorrow. Well, this morning, we're going to open our Bibles in light of all of that hope and in the, in the building project that we're seeing in um, Jer- Jerusalem by first turning to the New Testament. Every single week I'm going to do, do this. I'm going to turn to a passage in the New Testament to kind of um, tether or strengthen our hope Our building block of hope is ultimately Jesus Christ. This week, we're going to look at Luke 19. And in some ways, this is a bit of a sad passage. Uh, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem as Nehemiah is going to weep over Jerusalem. Their weeping is different. There are people in Jerusalem that have rejected Jesus Christ, their only hope in life and death. And for some of them, it's too late. This is what Jesus says. This is just before he dies. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is going to be 70 AD, about 600 years after um, they build the wall, that this temple is going to be destroyed again. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by another war because people did not turn to Jesus as their only hope. Well, let's turn to Nehemiah now. Let's get right into it. Nehemiah chapter 1 we're going to read the whole chapter uh, together. Nehemiah is found, at least in the NIV version, uh, around 400, 400 mark uh, of the Bible. But it's also on the screen. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Keslev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of the, my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned Uh, them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and earth. I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sins we we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them there and bring, from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name, which is Jerusalem. They are your servants and your servants' people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight, who desire in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the king of, of Persia. And then it reads, I was a cupbearer to the king. Let's ask the Lord for a blessing over his word and his message today. Father in heaven, we thank you that we could open your word again this morning. We could administer the sacrament of baptism, one of the means of grace. But we're now to the primary mean of grace, Lord, the means of opening our hearts, of, of challenging us, maybe convicting us may be encouraging us. God, you know where we all are this morning, what we're thinking about, what we're struggling with. God, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that your Holy Spirit will do a work on our hearts, that you will soften our hearts, that you'll make us love you more, that you will teach our hearts, that you will guide our hearts, and that you will help us to follow you so that we become more like Christ in all that we say, and in all that we do, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the general theme for the sermon series is hope. And again, I'm going to weave that into uh, the series as I go along. But as we enter each chapter, there are are sub-themes. There are things that we want to kind of pull out. And I'm going to weave hope into all of that. But the sub-theme for this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 1 is a profile of a servant leader. What we get profiled for us in Nehemiah chapter 1 is a servant leader. And I'm just going to look at three things from his life, uh, what we experience uh, in chapter 1. The first is he has a heart for others. As I shared earlier in my sermon, uh, Nehemiah is writing a memoir. A memoir. He's sharing his story with us. This is quite a personal account. And to help us to understand what's going on here, we just need to know a few more things. And and one of the things that we need to know is that he is a Jew. He's from the line of Judah. But he was not born in Israel. He was born in Babylon. He was born in Persia. And arguably, he was there during the time of Queen Esther and Mordecai, if you know the story of Queen Esther. And as a Jew in 538, which was before his time, it seems, he, he didn't return at any time between 538 and the present to go back as a remnant to, to Israel or to Judah. But it seems that some of his family members did. So he had family connection in Jerusalem as he was serving in a city called Susa. He was, by God's divine decrees, promoted to being a cupbearer. But what's interesting about Nehemiah right from the get-go is that he doesn't broadcast that he's a cupbearer. He's not showing off his credentials. He doesn't say, look at my resume, I'm a cupbearer, oh, and then this happened. It's the last thing he mentions in chapter 1. Oh, by the way, I am a cupbearer. That's what I do for a living. But the cupbearer is a position of great honor, you understand. I just want you to understand who we're talking about here. Not only was he the taste tester for the king, so he would test everything before it touched the lips of the king, he would become one of the king's trusted advisors. He was that close to the king. He had risen to a place of influence, and we don't know how, But but we do know that he had a trusted position with the king and the king really liked him and so did the queen. He was in Susa. He was living in the winter residence of the Persian emperor and he had a dream job. Not only did he have a dream job, he had power to wield and he was living literally in the lap of luxury. That's our friend, Nehemiah. And then his brothers show up. Or a brother and a few men. And I think that was actually his blood brother because he would have said, my brothers showed up. But he says, a brother of mine showed up, Hanani, and then some men. So I believe it actually was family that showed up that day. They had literally traveled 1,500 kilometers, as I said before. And here's just a little map of where they had to go to find Susa. They just went the back way. He went that way. You couldn't go right across the desert or else you would die. That's why it was such a long journey. It seems they may have been commissioned, but we don't know why or how that all happened. But we do know that he was eager to meet them. Verse 2, it says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And here are some qualities now just to start off with of a servant leader. Here's the first one. He has deep concern for others. If you're all bound up in protecting the idol of fame, If you're all bound up and protecting the idol of prestige and of luxury, if you don't want anybody to upset your apple cart and your nice little life that you're living, don't ask questions. Don't get engaged in people's mess. The easiest way to protect yourself from mess is to stay disengaged. That's not a servant of Christ at all. A servant of Christ engages regardless of what's behind the engagement, regardless of how messy it might become once you're informed about it. Galatians 2, Paul says to the church in Galatia, bear one another's burdens, and by doing that, you fulfill the law of Christ. That's all of us. We inquire. A servant leader inquires. A servant leader asks questions. A servant leader leans into the answer with engagement. And a servant leader opens their heart to the needs of others. This is what his brother said. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Things have gotten really bad in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We're not sure if some of the building had been done about 80 years before this. They tried to erect the building walls, and, and, and it, it never happened, and they were, it, was, it was closed down. They tried again, but it never seemed to happen. It kept getting pressure from the government not to touch the city walls, and this had left them in a very vulnerable spot. And I think you understand why. I think the comparable to us in our contemporary age about vulnerability with city walls would be comparable to not having an active police force. That's something comparable. Some of us have done overseas mission, and one of the things that we soon learned learned in Lai is that if there was a crime happening at night, you couldn't call the police. And so crimes happened at night. It was very, very unsafe in the city streets of Leh because there was no police force to, there, to be there. I hear that in New Orleans now, police, police are quitting their job because the crime rate is growing through the roof, and, and, and so people are unsure whether they can get, be protected by the police, and many of them are deciding to move away. It's the highest crime rate now in the States. You'd have bandits, you'd have raiders coming in, you'd try to get ahead and they would just steal your stuff. When you have no walls, you have no protection. But not only were there a lack of you know, civil authority and structures there that would protect the people, the, the walls were broken down, and they would have like wild animals just kind of touring the area. These animals lived in the wilderness. The leopards, the, the, the lions, the lynx, the, uh, what's the bottom corner one there? Hyenas. He looks a little menacing, doesn't he? You don't want to meet him on the streets of Jerusalem late at night. But they had their, their, their run of the mill there. The walls were needed in Israel at that time for protection against raiders and protection against wild animals. And he says, that's not the only thing. We're a disgrace to the nations around us. This was the city of of David. This was the city of God. And look at it. Look at these walls. The, The gates are burned with fire. It's just a pile of rubble. This should not be so. And when Nehemiah listened to all that, He sat down because when you hear a story that's too heavy to bear, your best posture is to sit down because your legs can go weak. And then he wept. A servant leader, loved one, opens his heart to the needs of others and weeps with those who weep. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's the first. Here's the second. He has a heart for God. You see, a heart that naturally cares for others and cares for the covenant community of God's people is ultimately a heart filled with the love of God. Nehemiah, you understand, was a spiritual man. And what happens when you're a spiritual man or a spiritual woman? is this, that when you receive news that's very unsettling, that's very difficult to receive, that's very, very troubling. A spiritual person with a weight that's too heavy to bear realizes immediately that they have to turn to the only one who can bear this weight. When you receive news that's too heavy, that's full of grief, that's full of pain, that's full of sadness, what you need to do as a spiritual person is realize that you can't carry it. It's too heavy for you. The weight's too great. And so the posture is immediate. The posture is immediate. The posture is to turn to the one who can carry the weight. So we read, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God in heaven. His only go-to position was God. Nehemiah means God comforts. That's what the name means. And by grace, he knew that God was his comforter. And our prayer is the same for these two beautiful infants and your three other children, this growing family, that they will all know that at the end of the day, God is the comforter for you and your family and for us all. And so that's why he went upward in prayer. Loved ones, if you have heard crushing news lately, I encourage you to Look upward. If your life is full of continued setbacks and hardship, like the people of Israel or Judah during the time of their, their time in Jerusalem, look upward. If you're in a very difficult situation, maybe your marriage is falling apart, maybe children are going off the rails, maybe hope is fleeting, you need to look upward. I've shared this text before, but this text often encourages me. To Chronicles 20, verse 12. Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem, had a big army, but this is his prayer. Another army was coming towards Jerusalem that could demolish them. And and this is what Hezekiah says. He says, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power. Listen, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's the prayer of every saint. I lift my eyes up to the hills. We say, "Where does my help come from?" And David answers that question by saying, "My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth." The profile of a servant leader is not only one who has a heart for others and opens that heart for others up, but his go-to position or her go-to position in the time of need or any time is upward, is to God Almighty. Remember that. Here's the third. It's a heart of heart for prayer. Prayer. Prayer characterizes, I think, more than anything else, the life of Nehemiah. He is a good example, loved ones, for what it means to be a follower of Christ to learn to live with holy affection for the Lord. You see, someone can have a heart. If someone has a heart for others and that heart is informed because of their heart for God, they will also have a heart for prayer. And that's what we see here. He was a pot man of power, Nehemiah was. He was a man of influence, But by the grace given him, nothing, nothing, nothing obstructed his prayer life. And I find that remarkable. Sometimes when you're living in the lap of luxury, sometimes when you're living with so much at your disposal, so much influence, so much power, so much ability to relax in in just whatever, one of the things that goes is prayer. You begin to believe that somehow you've arrived, that this is all because of what you have done or or something like that. I don't know. But your heart pumping for the Lord is weak, and so you're not quick to pray. But we see here a man that not only is quick to pray, he's persistent in his prayers, and he knows how to pray because he's used to doing it. There's three things. Just quickly, I want to share about his prayer life. And what happens in this text around prayer. First, it's his attitude. He was humble. It's a good posture. He submissively and deeply, he was submissive and he was deeply reflective of his own brokenness and not only his own brokenness, the brokenness of his of God's people. That's why I saw this little thing online about brokenness, and I don't know if you can read it. Uh, Probably not. It's like really, really small. And if you're like me, you can't see anything like that. But anyway, here we go. This is how to deal with brokenness. And this is Nehemiah right here. That you need to remember that God is love. In your brokenness, you need to remember that God is love. And then you need to repent of your sin. And then you need to remind yourself of his covenant promises, that God is the God of the covenant, and he promises, and his promises are never broken. And then you need to seek his wisdom and guidance for help in the healing process. That's exactly, that's exactly what Nehemiah does. And, and what we learn in this attitude of prayer then as he, he, he works that all out is that there's nothing presumptuous. You know, sometimes I would listen to prayers of, of people in power and I just think they're perfunctory. They're just, they're, just, they're just words being offered up to God. Have you ever been to one of those, you know, Mayor prayer breakfasts, not all of them, some of them are really good, but some of them, the prime minister, the president, the mayor comes up and he prays, and I don't want to throw them all under the bus right now, but they come up and pray, and they they say these nice words, and you can tell that they have no prayer life, that someone crafted that prayer for them. Oh, quick, write a prayer for me, i got to go to a prayer breakfast this morning. And you know that that's the case, And, and there's a sense of bravado and a sense of confidence that they have in, 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 in their time of prayer because really they don't really need God. They have their own resources. They have their own connections. They have their own abilities and, and they're just making a big mockery out of that. That's not of God. I read a prayer this week from George Washington. Does anybody know who he is or was? Who was he? The first, what? President of the United States of America, we all know that. We probably don't even know who the first prime minister of Canada is. I I know you do. You're all very intelligent here. He wrote this prayer. Listen to this. He says, Oh, most glorious God, remember that I am but dust and remit, forgive my transgressions, negligence, and ignorance and cover them all with the absolute obedience of thy dear son that those sacrifices for sin, praise, and thanksgiving which I have offered may be acceptable to thee in and for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered on the cross for me. Then he says, direct my thoughts, my words and work, wash away my sin in the immaculate blood of the Lamb and purge my heart by the Holy Spirit. That was a real prayer. That was a Nehemiah prayer of a leader of a country. The thing is, he was only 20 years old when he said that prayer. He got it. This informed his leadership as the first president of the United States of America. He was humble. That's your position. That's your attitude when you enter prayer is humility. Here's the second, the content. It's interesting when we go into our prayer groups on, on Thursday morning for the men, and I, I think the women do this as well, and when we pray upstairs before the service, and you're always welcome to join us at ten fifteen, just come and we pray over the service for 15, 20 minutes. You're all invited. You don't want to like, oh, I don't know if I can pray in public. Just just listen then. Your presence is beautiful. But when we pray in all these different forms, we have this upward, in, upward, geographically dysfunctional, upward, inward, and outward structure. And we do that all the time. Upward, inward, outward. And and that's exactly, interestingly, that's exactly what uh, Nehemiah does here in his prayer life. He begins with the upward, and what he does in the upward is just, and this is what we do when we come together for corporate prayer, and you can do this in your personal prayers as well. Some people use the acronym ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Anyway, you begin with adoration, always. No time is wasted when you waste most of your time in prayer for the adoration of Almighty God. No time is wasted. You think, well, I I should get on to these other things. i got to get to the request part. No, you don't have to get to the request part in part because God knows your request. He wants to hear your request. I get it. But no time is wasted when you take that time to adore God, to praise him for who he is. And this is what Nehemiah does. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandment. He pours out his love to God as the promise keeper, the God of the covenant, the the, the God of faithfulness, the God whom he loves. He moves from adoration to confession. And we have to move to confession in our prayers as well, loved ones. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. Verse 7, we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, the laws you you gave your servant Moses. When you pray, loved ones, and when I pray, and I hope you notice this, and if you don't, you can hold me to account on this as your pastor, that we include ourselves in the confession of sins that we're part of the problem. And we ultimately need the same solution. It's not they are sinners and I am not. No, we are sinners together and we all desperately need the grace of Almighty God. Nehemiah gets it. And the other thing he gets, and this is also beautiful about Nehemiah, is that what informs his prayer now is the word of God. And I can only encourage you in this, loved ones, He remembers the promises given to Moses. He remembers the demands that were given to Moses to God's people. He just recounts all this stuff. This stuff is just floating in his head, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy and from Exodus and everything. You see, a strong and healthy prayer life is underpinned by a deep devotion to God's Word because you need to know what grieves God's heart. And the only way you get to know what grieves God's heart is if you know God's Word. If you don't know God's Word, it's hard to have informed prayers. So inform your prayers with God's Word. And finally, he moves to intercession there. He prays for others. What's beautiful about his intercession and asking God to open the way for him to actually go to Jerusalem, what's beautiful about this intercession is that he says these beautiful words, and I just read a whole sermon on this, on these two words from Charles Spurgeon, verse 11, he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. He's bringing this this congregation of people together. He's saying, we all desire to worship you. So so hear our prayer, O God. I, I just love that. Because without desire, you can't pray. Without desire, you can't worship. If you have no desire to worship the Lord your God when you come into this place, it's not worship. If you have no desire to pray when you come into prayer before the Lord your God, that's not prayer. I don't know what it is, it's just not prayer. That we are fueled by desire. Desire. And what we need by the Holy Spirit is the right desires. The desires of Christ, the affection of Christ needs to live in us so that our desires are rightly aligned with Christ. But we better have desire for Jesus, for God's glory, for the coming kingdom, for what God can do, for worship. We're a people driven by godly desires. And finally, We need to be persistent in prayer. Nehemiah was very persistent in prayer. I can tell, one, by the content of his prayer that he was a man of prayer. And you can just tell when people pray. They're like, yeah, this guy prays a lot. Yeah, this woman prays a lot because she's just, she's just, she's just, dah, there. For lack of a better word. (laughs) But the content of their prayer is informing them, informing you that they are people of prayer. But not only that, if you do the calculations, and the calculations are not done in our page, on our page, but if we just kind of figure out the, the, the math here, he received this news in December about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then in April, he, or March, he meets the king, the, the month of Nisan. That's like a three-month period. So we get the sense that for the next three months, we have a man who's fasting and praying and praying and fasting and praying over this need, preparing the courage to talk to the, to, to the, to the emperor and, and praying that God will go before him. He's a man of prayer, and he's persistent. Maybe you need to hear that this morning, that if you're in, you in a difficult bind, first drop, stop, drop, and pray. Maybe you just need to keep on praying and persistently. But let me close with this. Nehemiah demonstrates for us a spiritual maturity that we should follow. His heart for others, his heart for the Lord God Almighty, and his heart for prayer are indelible stamps that must be on our lives. But I think we understand that Nehemiah was a broken sinner and that he would want no one to put their trust in him. That's why he was humble about his memoirs. He's like, don't look at me, I got issues. He's pointing ultimately to the leader who supersedes this spiritual leader, who needs to become our ultimate leader. His name is Jesus. And you know that Jesus left the lap of luxury, you could say, to live in a life of of poverty on this earth. We've preached about that. I've preached about that before. But we walk with Jesus through his ministry, and you know, you know for certain, if you've read the Gospels at all, that Jesus had a heart for others. He grieved for others. He hurt for others. He loved others. And, and then we get this picture right before he's about to die outside of Jerusalem, and he's weeping over the city of Jerusalem, literally weeping over the city because they're going to reject him, and they have rejected him, and the, the, their demise is in the future. And this very city that Nehemiah built with all those nice walls, and Ezra helped resurrect the temple or got temple worship going, and Zerubbabel helped with the building of the temple, and all that, all that stuff was done, and then Herod built a really big temple and all that stuff. The Son of God enters into that city and they kick him out. And they crucify him on a tree, on his cross outside the city. The city that he loved. The city that Nehemiah came to build. But he had he did that because he had a heart for the will of his father. He says, My will is to do the Father's will. And the Father's will would be that he would die for the people that have rejected him. And then even on the cross, Jesus is desperate in prayer to the one who deserves our prayer, the Father in heaven. Loved ones, hear me out this morning. The servant leadership of Nehemiah is worthy. Please, it's worthy of our attention. We're going to learn a lot from Nehemiah over the next number of months. But our trust And listen, our dependence on Jesus Christ is not only worthy of our attention, our trust and dependence on Jesus Christ is worthy of our lives. That we surrender our life to Him, that we give our life to Him, that we say, Lord, we are Yours. Lead us. You are the great leader. Because not only is he a spiritual leader, loved ones, he is our savior. He is our only hope in life and in death for this life and the life to come. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, what's stopping you from letting him be the lord of your life let's pray father in heaven we thank you we thank you for the story of nehemiah we're looking forward to what we're going to learn in this in this in these chapters and for what nehemiah represents But we know for certain that Nehemiah would not want us to draw our hearts to him or to to elevate him or to praise him, to give him accolades. He was just a cupbearer as a side note. No, he would want us this morning, as I have proclaimed, to look upon Jesus, the servant leader who becomes our Savior and says, believe on me, believe in me, And you will have eternal life. I've given my life to you. Now you give your life back to me. That's what Jesus is saying this morning. And it doesn't matter what we've done in the past. It doesn't really matter who we are. It doesn't matter how much money we have. None of that's important. It's all going to burn anyway, oh God. Lord, what you want is our hearts this morning. You want us to trust in you. To love you to follow you with all of our heart. And as we do that, to open our hearts up to others, to review you as God, and come before you in prayer. Lord, watch over us now. Allow this message to plant, be planted deeply in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.